Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. So glad to have the power panel in place last hour. That was a very enjoyable hour. Thank you for all the great questions that came in. They're still coming in, so just so you know, if you did send a question in, I am going to get to it. I've copied and pasted and put it in an f- email, and I'm going to send it to the panel, and we'll discuss next week. So if you're tune in next time, uh, next Thursday, and we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, there's still some great questions that came in. I hope that you're having a good day. I'm got my Bible open to Romans 8. I love Romans. I go there all the time. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For Sorry, I am you're having trouble. You're convinced mess- that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So God loves you. Nothing can separate us from his love. Isn't it wonderful to know that that love is secure and that he loves you and that he's crazy about you? And if you've made a decision to follow him and give your life to him and surrender, he has you in the palm of his hand. What a nice, nice, powerful thought that is. We have a great hour coming up. Dr. Bruce Ashford's going to be joining me in just a minute or two. We're still trying to get him on the line. I'm looking forward to talking to Bruce. It's been a while since we've chatted. He used to be on the morning show quite a bit. And now he is uh, going to be on with me this afternoon. I'm looking forward to that. And then in the second uh, hour, the second half of this hour, we're going to talk to Daniel Darling, he's written a book on the characters of Easter. So as we get into the season of Lent, it's going to be awfully nice to start thinking about Easter Sunday just four weeks away. So it's going to be fun to talk to Daniel Darling about that as well. So my guest, Dr. Bruce Ashford, I think has finally made it onto the line. Bruce, welcome. Hey, it's great to be back on the show, Bill. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I've been thinking about you from time to time, and I'm always intrigued with what's going through that brain of yours because you write and think so critically and so well. And I thought, you know, it's time to get you on the afternoon show and give some of that wisdom out to me and my listeners. So listen, we've done this show probably 25, 30 times together. Love your show. You're smart, witty. And honestly, I love your audience. We've done Q&A before. Smart, good thinking audience and just really happy to be back. Thank you. So, um, I know you've got some stuff that you wanted to share with um, us today and a blog you just got done writing, and I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, so, you know, I thought a good topic today, and this will get published uh, sometime soon at a national outlet. I'm, I'm writing on uh, stories that we tell about the world, and uh, in particular today I'm thinking about stories that secular progressives tell about the world, the story that they tell about reality, versus the story a conservative Christian would tell. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I thought it would be fun, if you're okay with it, to uh, kind of first talk about what the secular progressive story of the world is and uh, why it's, it doesn't comport with reality. And then after that, we can talk about what a, maybe in the next segment, what a conservative Christian story of the world okay. uh, 
uh, looks like. I'd love to. Now, Bruce, when you say uh, secular uh, view of the world, this is a non-Christian view. When we use the word yeah. secular, we're just saying this is someone outside of the family of God. This is an unsaved person, and this is their view. Yeah, or it could, it could in some cases, be a, a, a saved Christian who uh, just has some faulty thinking that they've gotten through the university they went to or through you know, uh, media outlets or whatever, but it's a, a fundamentally unchristian way of thinking. Okay, let's uh, let's give it a give it a go. Yeah. So the progressive story of the world is that humanity can make tremendous uh, strides, progress. That's the word progressive comes from. Um, can make tremendous moral progress. That we can take a great leap forward, and that uh, you know, so every story of the world um, um, locates an evil something that is evil, something that's keeping us from being who we ought to be. And for secular progressives, the evil usually is cultural institutions. So evil doesn't come from the heart. When people behave badly, it's because uh, institutions have made them behave badly. They haven't been educated well enough. So the problem is not within, it's without. <clears throat> now, we'll, in a moment, we'll talk about Christian conservatives believe that problems come from can come from be, you know, caused by bad cultural institutions mm-hmm. and can be prodded by external factors. But evil, we think, comes from within. For a secular progressive, evil doesn't come from within. It comes from without. And then in the progressive story, if evil comes from without, then our salvation is uh, comes through fixing those things that are external to us, mm-hmm. right? So if uh, uh, people are doing bad things, if society is not going well, then if we can just fix our cultural institutions, you know, corrupted police officers, uh, corrupted educational institutions. If we can fix those, then evil will go away. And sometimes it's not stated that simply, but that's the underlying assumption. So once we've located the fundamental evil in the world, something external to us as people, if we want to take a great leap forward, then we'll just fix those institutions. And so um, the, the secular progressive story of the world draws upon the world's uh, smart people and influential people and says, listen, if we can just clear the decks, if we can get rid of our bad cultural institutions and replace them with good ones, things are going to go a whole lot better. There won't be any more wars. Uh, we won't have crime. We educate people, fix our institutions. Things are going to be uh, uh, so much better. So if we can get all of our best economists in a room and our best uh, political leaders and our best ideologues, we can kind of you know, to state it strongly, burn down the institutions we've got, envision some really good ones, make sweeping changes very quickly, and we can take a great leap forward. This is the revolutionary impulse. And secular progressives, like, they like revolutions. So a good example in Russia was the communist revolution. Was it just a political revolution? Didn't just replace one government with another, but actually replaced all the institutions in society, and there was a lot of bloodshed that came with it. Um, in America, we haven't anything that kind of uh, that progressive, but you've got an impulse on the part of a lot of people to, for example, get rid of our um, traditional views of gender and say, listen, if a, if a little girl wants to become a little boy, she can. Or if a man wants to become a woman, he can. Let's get rid of that tradition, that um, let's get rid of the cultural institution of marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman. We could have marriage between a man and a man. Let's get rid of our free market that's done us pretty well. It's not perfect. There's sinners in it. 
so it's going to get messed up. But if we get rid of the free market and go to a more socialist model, we can take a great leap forward. And, Bill, I've heard you talk on the show, you know, over and over again. You're a Bible-believing radio host, and probably most of your – I guess most of the folks out listening today are also. And, uh, I mean, wouldn't you agree that the even though there are problems with our institutions, that the reason we have those problems is because we're sinners? Mm-hmm. Amen. And so, the you know, the ultimate solution <clears throat> is a spiritual solution that we're fixing hearts. And then politically, I think what we're going to want to do – and we'll talk about this a little bit later – is take the institutions, institutions we've got and make them a little better. Bend them in the right direction. Reform, right, instead of revolution. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the secular progressive story of the world. Does that, uh, does that make sense? Does that raise any questions for you or remind you of things in the news cycle? It, it does, and I think it does make sense, uh, Bruce. And I think you expressed it quite well. Well, we... we um, uh, just to take, for example, uh, since we're still talking about secular progressivism, let me mention two or three revolutionary ideas that want to sort of get rid of what we believed here in the West. Uh, it's been based on Jewish and Christian thought. Get rid of Jewish and Christian thought and, uh, and fundamentally change it. One, one that I mentioned is the uh, transgender movement. Now, transgenderism, uh, we're not, I don't want to speak badly of people who are confused about their gender and their sexual orientation. I'm not talking about that for a moment. I'm talking about the activists who want to uh, basically destroy biology. God is the one who created biology. And to say that we can make radical changes and uh, call a man a woman and call a woman a man. That's one example. Um, a, a, another example of a progressive ideology is, I'm going to give a big phrase here for those of you out there in radio land, hmm. expressive individualism. That is probably the ideology that 50% of America ascribes to. And some of them are on the right. I'd say most of them are probably more on the left. Um, But expressive individualism says that the purpose of life is to be authentic and that the way to be authentic is to align our lives with our deepest desires and that the way to be an authentic society is to applaud other people as heroes when they engage in their deepest desires. I think as Christians, we'd come back to that and say, actually, one of the most dangerous things we could do, and one of the worst things uh, you know, we can do, is to do whatever we desire deeply. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the times, <laughs> the, the very thing we, want to, we desire deeply is sin, right. and it's something that's going to hurt us. And then the worst thing a society can do is to stand back and clap and applaud it. Yeah. Um, it will dishonor <clears> God, <throat> Bruce, and ruin our lives. That, yeah, and, and fundamentally, the, the, the issue is, I mean, we do want to make political changes, but the deepest change is a change that politics can never bring. It's a limited sphere. We ought to engage in it. I'm a political opinion writer, so I'm for it, not against it. Um, but the deepest change is one that comes from, from within. It's believing truths like you just read uh, a little while ago from Romans 8, um, that it's God who's at work here, and so we want to we want to work toward and pray for um, people turn into Christ instead of following our deepest desires, follow him. Mm-hmm. And then once we're doing that, our cultural institutions are going to be reformed. You know, we can work for that in the political realm. We can align those institutions uh, with reality so that we recognize gender for what it is, mm-hmm. marriage marriage for what it is, 
a baby in a womb for what it is, a, 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 a creature made by God in his image. And uh, there's a couple of examples. I mean, one, one more example um, of a progressive revolution is to um, get rid of the belief that people in Europe and the U.S. have had, and around the world for that matter, for years, that um, uh, really that God is God is the one who has uh, secured our nation and protects us and guides us and the one who reveals to us the right way to live. And they want to replace God with science. There's nothing wrong with science, and I love it. But when you make science into a God, and when you say, listen, real knowledge can't come from the Bible, real knowledge, there is no God. Or if there is, he doesn't speak. The only real knowledge, as this secular progressive story goes, comes from science. But when you do that, you undermine the very God who gave us the world to study by means of science. And this God reveals himself not only through the world that we study, that's science, but also reveals himself through the Bible. And uh, so I think what we want to do as Christian conservatives is just kind of gently ask questions to people about um, often that's the best thing to do, rather than sometimes we need to make bold assertions. But we also want to gently just kind of ask questions. Does your view of the world really make sense of reality? Is it really true that people are not evil, that we don't have badness woven deeply into our hearts, that we're not sinners? Do you really think it's true that if we just educate people better, they'll live better? Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that's, uh, that's the progressive, uh, secular progressive narrative of the world. Um I think this would be probably an excellent time, Bruce, for us just to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Christian view. How's that? Great. That sounds good. Terrific. Dr. Bruce Ashford is my guest. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Dr. Bruce Ashford, if we had gone to school together and if they seated alphabetically, him and I would have been the bestest of friends. Arnold Ashford, we'd have been right next to each other. All right, Bruce, let's go back to now the Christian perspective. You did an excellent job of laying out the secular progressive. Yeah, so, you know, the, uh, I think one thing uh, that we as Christian uh, conservatives, I call myself conservative. I want to conserve the Christian faith and conserve what's best in our cultural heritage, even while correcting the things that are, that are not good. Um, one of the things we have been good at, I think, fairly good at, is stating the truth. Uh, one of the things we have not been as good at is telling that truth in the form of a story of what's gone wrong with the world and what it'll take to fix it. So in the Christian conservative um, story of the world, what's gone wrong is that people have gone wrong. And evil is located primarily in people's hearts, not mm -hmm. primarily in unjust systems. And uh, so we need to recognize that. And, and, and there's a very good movie called The Village that was, uh, was about 15 years old. And it tells the story of uh, a group of uh, people who had experienced great evil in the world. And they just started, decided to start a little colony in the woods. And at the end of the movie, you don't know that that's what had happened. You just see a little colony in the woods where people had raised their children 
uh, and didn't let them leave the little village or colony or, and go anywhere. And the idea was that institutions are corrupt, so if we withdraw from society, there won't be any evil. But what happens in the movie is there's a murder. And the revelation in the movie is you can move in the middle of nowhere if you want to, but evil resides in the human heart. Mm-hmm. You can't get away from evil. And so that's the first element of the Christian story is realizing that all of us as sinners, you're reading from the book of Romans earlier, the book of Romans makes it very clear. Each of us um, have sinned. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so then the solution is never just going to be get our smartest people together and make better institutions. And uh, if you just give better education and have better police officers and so forth, and we'll get rid of crime and we'll get rid of war— uh, that's what Socrates believes, that's what Muslims believe, that's what secular progressives believe. Better education, better institutions, and things will be better. But as Christians, we don't believe that. Evil is embedded in the human heart. So it doesn't matter how many social scientists, how many psychologists, how many sociologists, how many economists, how many suave D.C. politicians we get together. Um, no matter how brilliant they are, if you put them all together in a room, they're not going to be able to fix things. And there's two reasons. First is they're fallen. They're sinners, like Romans says. Uh, They're self-interested. They're never going to consistently seek what's best for everyone in our nation. And and so they're fallen. But number two, they're finite. Uh, They're limited. I mean, even the smartest among us, even Bill Arnold, isn't nearly as smart as God is. Uh, You know, we're limited in our ability to dream up a new society that will run perfectly. It just won't happen. And so as Christians, we know there are limits to what we can do, and I think that's why we're not revolutionaries. We don't harbor these dreams that we can recreate the United States of America and make it a perfectly just society. No socialism, no progressivism, no, um, you know, transgender activism. These things aren't going to, you know, fix things for us. And so instead, what we want to do is, number one, spiritually and religiously, we want people to uh, turn to God and uh, to honor him and love him and honor his moral law and live the way we should live. And then number two, we don't want revolutions. They're not going to fix anything. So if there are problems in America, we want to reform our institutions, to take the ones that we already have and help make them a little bit better rather than burning them to the ground and and, uh, and starting over again. So that's the basic conservative story. If we've got a little bit of time, two or three minutes, I've got some thoughts on how to tell the story. On, I'd, uh, I'd love that. We do have three minutes, three okay. minute, four okay. minutes, four minutes, actually, Bruce. Okay. Well, you know, there are a couple of um, people in public life who've been good storytellers. And uh, Ronald Reagan was one back during the Cold War. He was, he was very good at it. I want to mention some things that they do that might help us who are Bible-believing Christians when we're telling this story of the world, that God created it, that people have sinned against him, that sin is the reason for our problems, and that no number of brilliant social managers or social scientists or politicians can save us. I think one of the things we want to do when we tell the story is we want to take people's emotional concerns into account. Um, I mean, we're in a COVID era. People already have emotional concerns, but they're depressed and frustrated, and it's just a weird moment. And we want uh, people have lost their jobs. Marriages are falling apart. And when we tell the story, we want to be empathetic, and we want to resonate with 
some of the emotion that's inside of people. Um, I think a second thing we want to do is we want to use simple language that all people can understand. Politicians can use flighty language sometimes, and uh, academics and intellectuals can use words that don't resonate. And we need to speak, I think, uh, you know, clearly and directly. Um, we need to give some real thought on how we would maybe reframe um, some of the public debates that we see in the political realm and frame them in more distinctively Christian terms and fit them in into the, uh, the narrative that we're telling. And then uh, finally, I would mention, I think it's good to have a sense of humor. Uh, and you bring that to this show. Uh, you, you like a good laugh, and mm -hmm. you like to bring up a little bit of levity, and I think it helps people. We live in a fallen world, and there's a sociologist, uh, now that I've cracked on sociologists a little bit, there, <laughs> there's a good one. I mean, he's dead now, but he was a good one, named Peter Berger. And he argued that God gave laughter to the world to help us deal with the fact that it's so painful and boring sometimes and dull, that laughter is redemptive, that it's uh, some something given good that's given by God. And so when we talk with people, as Christians, we're often pretty earnest, and uh, you know we can be pretty intense about our beliefs. I think one of the things we can do when we tell our Christian story to the world is just to to also be fun to be around and um, even be willing to poke fun at ourselves. You know, we're telling the Christian story of the world, but we don't even live consistently with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so those are a few things. Um, I think, you know, story is fundamental what it means to be a human. Even if we don't realize it, we have a story of the world in our mind. Why the world is here, why we're here, what went wrong and how to fix it. we got to learn how to tell that story to our neighbors and our friends. Really well done, Bruce. Uh, really, you've given us, given us a lot to think about, and you've done it in such a, a beautiful way of framing how we can be reminded to try to work on telling our own story and to do it with joy and make that story seem uh, irresistible. Yeah, I mean, that's what you want. I mean, the early church was good at it. Yeah. They were persecuted in the Roman Empire, and they were able to tell the story of, of Christ Jesus and of themselves and to win people over and persuade them. They weren't angry. They weren't mocking and insulting. They were wooing and drawing people in. Mm -hmm. So true. Bruce, thanks for taking the time to do the show today. Thank you for having me on the show, Bill. I hope yeah. you'll invite me back again. Oh, I'll I pay will. you 25 bucks if you do. <laughs> I will indeed. <laughs> Dr. Bruce Ashford's been my guest. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the characters of Easter with Daniel Darling. We'll be right back.
<laughs> All right, how about this for a book title? The Characters of Easter. The villains, heroes, cowards, and crooks who witnessed history's biggest miracle. You think of Easter where the Son of God took on the, the sin of the world and defeated death and the grave. Now, just imagine some of the people that were witnessing all of that, the fearful fishermen, the despised tax collectors, marginalized women, feeble politicians, and traitorous friends. That's all in a book written by Daniel Darling. He is the Senior Vice President of Communications for the National Religious Broadcasters and a regular contributor to other several leading evangelical publications, ones that I know you'd be aware of. Anyway, he is uh, my guest today. Daniel, welcome. Hey, it's great to be on here with you. I got to tell you, I love the book title. You're crushing it with the book title. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I've always loved character profiles, and so this was fun to do. Yeah, and let's start, start let's start talking about these these characters. All right, it's easy for us to be hard on disciples like Peter and John, you know, without really understanding what they were thinking and how much they gave up to follow Jesus. What was it like to experience three whole years with Jesus? We really are hard on them. You know, it's funny. We'll read through the Gospels, and Peter will say something, or John will do something, you know, call down fire from heaven or something, and we'll just sit there in, in our air-conditioned, uh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. pew, uh, sanctuaries and say, man, how could these guys do that? We, we know so much better. But if you think about it, these were young men uh, who gave up everything. Uh, they were probably in their early 20s. They gave up, uh, you know, a pretty certain future, for an uncertain future, to follow Jesus. They didn't know what they were signing up for completely. Uh, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. It wasn't like it was a great uh, financial move or career move, and yet they were compelled by Jesus. They believed he was the Messiah, the the promised one, um, and they pledged their whole lives to follow him. And along the way, Jesus took these rough, um, untrained, you know, not— elite scholarly men, and they became the foundation of this movement that exists 2,000 years later uh, called the Church. You know, Daniel, I've been watching season—I watched season one of The Chosen, so it was really interesting mm-hmm. for me to see Jesus assembling these disciples and kind of the awkward beginnings and the trepidations and then the choices they had to make and, the you know, leaving their, their families, and uh, it was—it uh, kind of put a real a real face on it. Yeah, I love that, uh, the shows, and, and I really encourage everybody, if they can, to go watch it, and I know they're filming season two right now. Um, but it really is interesting when you try to humanize these people uh, that were swept up into this story of Easter, into the story of Jesus. I mean, we name towns after them, and our, we name our children after them, mm-hmm. uh, churches and denominations, but they were just ordinary people who uh, were called by God uh, to be part of his mission. Yeah. Daniel, let's talk about uh, the nature of discipleship. Now, you make a, a point in the book about the, the journey from, say, casual observer to a devoted follower of Christ that Peter made, for example. Jesus, you know, he seemed to be calling him multiple times, even after the resurrection. What's up with that? Yeah, that's the interesting thing about Peter that I just love, and I, I spent probably the most time on Peter uh, because you see that Jesus doesn't just call him once, he calls him multiple times, a series of times with increasing uh, demands of Peter. And I think that's the way Jesus calls us. We often think there's just one time, this one moment, maybe there's a moment that we recognize 
Christ is Lord, but it's a series of calls over a lifetime. And for Peter, it was that way. They were they had seen each other. Peter had gone because Andrew had had uh, brought him to Jesus. Uh, Peter had had Jesus at his home there in Capernaum. They probably passed each other in the synagogue or in the markets because they lived in Capernaum there. But then there was that day on the beach where, uh, after a long and unsuccessful night on the sea, Jesus uh, call you know does this miracle with the fish. Which is to say that if he if if Peter follows him, Jesus will take care of him, and Peter Peter answers the call. Jesus says, "Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men." He didn't know what that would mean. He didn't know all of that, but he gave up everything and followed him. But then there's a series of calls you know, over through Peter's life. You know, who do you say that I am? Peter says, "Thou art the Christ." He turns to them and says, "Will you now leave me as these others?" And he says, "Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life." And then of course there's Peter's big failure where he thinks he's more courageous than he really is. He thinks he's the one who who can do this in his own strength, and he fails Jesus by denying him three times. And yet at the end of the book of John, we see again Jesus on the beach, again Peter after a long and unsuccessful night in his vocation, Jesus again performing that same miracle, as if to say that same original call is still here. Yes, you have failed. Yes, you are weak but I will fill you with spiritual strength. And then we see that same person on the day of Pentecost preaching to thousands uh, and seeing thousands come to faith. And it's just a testimony that God takes us weak and frail, uh, flawed, and he can take us if we're willing to say yes and really make something of our lives and use us for his glory. Mm-hmm. I love the transformation, Daniel. I think of uh, John turned from son of thunder to an apostle of love and when you think of Son of Thunder, what image do you have in your mind? I always think of like the captain of the rugby team or something. <laughs> right. I mean, we think of Peter as the kind of outspoken, uh, emotional one, but actually it was John, James and John, who Jesus gave the name Sons of Thunder, and this was not a, a term of endearment. This was <laughs> yeah. uh, a name he he had given them because they were they were rather impetuous. They were kind of self righteous and legalistic. I mean, we see twice where John really wants to punish anyone who's not in line. He wants Jesus to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans. Uh, he, at another time, he, he's nervous because there's other people doing gospel ministry, and he's saying, hold, hold on a second, you know, they're not with us, and should we put a stop to this? And Jesus rebukes him. But then you see, you also see John as one of the ones who's fighting for power and saying, hey, how close am I going to be to you in the kingdom? He, he's thinking Jesus is setting up this political kingdom, and he's going to be Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense. He enlists his mother to ask Jesus, um, which is, you know, amazing. But then we see a turn in John's life, I think. As, as you see in the upper room, in the upper room discourse is the first time that John referred to himself as the as the uh, the one whom Jesus loves. And he does actually get to sit on the right hand of Jesus, but it's not in power, but it's a different kind of kingdom. It's one of where Jesus is washing feet. It's one where uh, the way to greatness is through humility and service. And by the end of John's life, he's writing uh, letters, and he's talking about love. He's talking about how to serve others. And so Jesus transformed this young, impetuous, temperamental, legalistic person and makes him an apostle of love and shows us that God wants to do the same kind of work in us, that he takes us where we are, raw and untested, and he really can use us for his service if we're willing to say yes to him. Yeah, he comes out as a humble leader. It's pretty pretty amazing. Mm. Yeah, he really does. And 
Um, you see this with all the disciples, that the kind of people Jesus chooses uh, to be part of his inner circle are not the kind of people that you and I would would mark for greatness, would say these are the kind of people you can build movement with. And yet, those are the very people Jesus chose. Mm-hmm. Daniel, you uh, say in your book that people can easily misunderstand Thomas. So maybe just let's settle the score right now, you and me. So how should we think about Thomas and the doubts that he brought to Jesus? You know, it's unfortunate that we, we know him as doubting Thomas, and uh, because he was so much more than that. Again, he is another person who gave up everything to follow Jesus for three years. And we only see Thomas speak three times in the Gospels that's, that are recorded. The first time he speaks is when the disciples are arguing about whether or not they should go back to Bethany to be with Mary and Martha and with their their um, brother Lazarus, who is sick and dying. And it's very dangerous because Jesus' enemies are, are gathering steam there, and it's a, it's a risk. Thomas pipes up at the end of this whole discussion, after analyzing everything and looking at it clearly, saying, let's go and let's go die with Jesus, which is a remarkable statement. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who's saying, okay, I want to count the cost. I want to know what's in it for me, but I'm willing to go die with Jesus. The second time we see Thomas speak, is in the upper room when Jesus is explaining what this new movement's going to look like, that he's going to leave and the Holy Spirit's going to uh, come back and uh, empower them. And he said to them that he is going to prepare a place for them, and he's going to a place where they can't go. And all Thomas asks is a simple question that every seeker, every follower asks, how will we know the way? To which Jesus replies, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas was a question asker. He was someone who said, I want to follow Jesus, but I want to, I want to know what I'm getting into, and, and how can I follow? How can I risk everything? How can I uh, be with Jesus? And then, of course, at the end, we see Thomas, who is after the crucifixion. He's likely despondent because the one he put his faith in has let him down. That Jesus has gotten arrested. He's uh, unjustly crucified. He's thinking... I thought I had all my ducks in a row. I thought I knew this was the right person. I thought I had bet on the right horse, if you will, and everything's crashed around him. And the disciples had had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, but Thomas wasn't there. So they go back to Thomas and say, you, you've got to see that Jesus is alive. Well, he doesn't believe it. He's despondent. But they pull him toward Jesus, which shows the value of community. And they go back to that upper room, the place where they had the Last Supper, and Thomas um, is there, and Jesus appears and shows him his scars. And Thomas's reaction is the only right reaction to the resurrected Jesus. He says, my Lord and my God. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas had questions like we do. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. But those, but when we go get to the end of our doubts, if we're honest, we'll find Jesus. And then the only response is, is worship. Mm. You know, the exchange between Mary and Jesus at the resurrection brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. But I would love for you, Daniel, to talk about why God chose to, an, to announce the news of Jesus' resurrection. Why, why women? Why a woman? If you, if you think about what's so fascinating about this is that who did he choose to both— who did God in his sovereignty choose both to discover— the empty tomb that Christ had risen and defeated sin and death in the grave. Who did he choose to announce that? Wow. Not 
not the disciples, mm. not Pilate, who was the Roman governor, not the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders, but women who had very little power and agency in those days, mm-hmm. whose word would not really be believed. Um, and you think about the first woman is Mary Magdalene, who had a checkered life, who was, the Bible says, had seven demons, who was troubled and had found freedom and rescue in Jesus. And she's the first one to, to announce the news, which is so emblematic of Christ's kingdom that it's often the least likely messengers sharing the good news of, of the gospel. What a great testimony. It also shows us that Christianity in the first century and Christianity today elevates women. It, it treats women uh, and, and any, any kind of um, equality for women really originated in the story of Christianity. Yeah. I mean, Jesus is turning the world upside down, recognizing he women. Really and, is. Yeah, it's really, really amazing. This is so fascinating, Daniel. You did such a beautiful job of laying this book out. I need to take a little break, but when I come back, we'll continue with Daniel Darling and his book. You're going to probably want to get your hands on this one as you prepare your heart and minds for coming up uh, Easter in four weeks. The book is called The Characters of Easter, The Villains, Heroes, Cowards, and Crooks Who Witnessed History's Biggest Miracle. Be right back. Daniel Darling has written a book called The Characters of Easter's of Easter, The Villains, Heroes, Cowards, and Crooks Who Witness History's Biggest Miracle. All right, let's um let's talk about Judas. It's hard for probably a lot of us to f- understand how you could spend three years with Jesus <clears throat> understanding his love, the way he treated people, the things he did, and yet Judas still turned on him. It it really is from like remarkable, even 2,000 years later as we read the story, to just comprehend. I mean, we forget. I think we know Judas for his betrayal, obviously. We forget that he um, was with Jesus. As you said, for three years, he had given up everything to follow Jesus. He had risked everything on this itinerant rabbi from Nazareth uh, with no place to lay his head. Uh, And it's all the more remarkable when you consider that uh, Jesus had deputized Judas along with the other disciples to go preach the gospel of the kingdom and to heal. So for three years, Judas was a gospel preacher. There will be people in heaven because of the preaching of Judas. <laughs> I've never heard that said before. Which, which is remarkable, right? And yet, how could he betray Jesus? And I, and I think when you look at the life of Judas, now let's remember, he was trusted with the money. So you don't, you give the the treasure job to someone you really trust. So everybody, everyone in the first century would have been stunned to know that Judas betrayed him. Um, and he didn't sell out Jesus for that much money. 30 pieces of silver was, was not much. But I think what is happening with Judas is this, that Judas believed in the idea of Jesus. He believed in what Jesus could bring. He could bring political revolution, he thought. He was building a movement, he thought, to overcome, overtake Rome. Um, but he he believed in the idea of Jesus, but not in Jesus himself. And over time, Jesus starts making all the wrong moves that you need to make to build a political movement. He's 
pushing disciples away instead of uh, gathering more. He's um, he's allowing Mary to, to spend an exorbitant amount on this perfume to uh, to worship him with. He's resisting the armies of heaven to take on his enemies. He's letting himself get arrested. He's talking about resurrection, about death and resurrection. And so I think over time, Judas is thinking, man, I, I bet on the wrong horse here. I'm, I've got the wrong person. And so he cuts his losses. But what's really sad about Judas is this, is that Judas tells us something about Jesus and tells us something about Judas. Tells us something about Jesus that Jesus washed the feet of the one he knew would betray him. Jesus cared for someone for three years he knew would betray him. Uh, but it's also sad about Judas. You see this final thing with him where he takes the money into the religious leaders. He has great remorse over what he's done. And the religious leaders had nothing to give him, nowhere to point him. Um, he could have found, Judas could have found forgiveness in the one he had betrayed. Contrast him with Peter, who had denied the Lord, but found forgiveness and redemption, one he had denied. Judas could have found that too, but he, but he didn't. I, <clears throat> amazing to think of Peter that I will die for you, but then not that much longer, he's later, he's saying, I don't know the man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think what happened with Peter is less about, um, we typically think, oh, what a coward he was. And, and in some ways he did get scared. But the other disciples ran. Peter stuck with Jesus almost to the very end. I think what was happening with Peter is he had a he had a false estimate of his own strength. Here's a guy that said, everyone's going to leave. I'm going to stick it out. He tries to fight the soldiers in the garden, and he ends up clumsily wielding the sword and cutting off the guy's ear. And it's like, Peter, you're a fisherman. You're not a soldier. <laughs> and then, then he tries to sneak into the inner circle there to, into the, to hear what's going on with Jesus' trial right outside of the, the court there. And he tries to be stealth. And of course, of course, he's going to be detected. He has this thick Galilean accent. Again, he's a, he's a fisherman. He's not yeah. a Navy SEAL. And so eventually he's humbled because he realizes Jesus was right. I'm not that strong. What's mm. interesting about the rooster crowing is that that was a common sound that you would hear every day, kind of like a train whistle if you live near a train. For the rest of his life, he would hear that rooster crow and be reminded of his weakness and failure. Yet he'd also be reminded of the love of God and the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Daniel, what's the Easter narrative on Pontius Pilate? Did Was Jesus on trial before Pilate, or was Pilate on trial before Jesus? You know, it's interesting. If you were to look at that scene in, in Pilate's back chambers, where Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, his own wife is pleading with him to say, you can't do this. It looks like Pilate, the Roman governor, has all the power in his hands, and here this itinerant rabbi who's been rejected by his own people, his disciples have fled, he's beaten to within an inch of his life, has little power. And yet, actually, the, Jesus is the one who has all the power, and Pilate is kind of a pawn in this eternal plan of God. And it's actually not Jesus on trial, because Jesus had already accepted the cup of God's wrath. He'd already accepted the path to the cross. He laid his life down. He pushed back the armies of heaven. It was Pilate on trial. And you see Jesus probing and asking questions, because he cares for the soul of Pilate. Um, And it's interesting, today, we only know Pilate as a footnote in the story of Jesus. 
um, the first Christian creed, the oldest Christian creed, the Apostles' Creed, says, makes a point of saying that Jesus suffered un- under Pontius Pilate as a way of noting that it was a historical moment, but also contrasting the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of God. Today we look around and we say, this person's in power, they're powerful, or this person's in power, or this government, or this party, and we get scared and we get nervous. But we should remember the kingdom of God is what's re- where the real power is, and the kingdom of God is what what will endure. Mm-hmm. Daniel, I'm a little uh, intrigued with the story of Barabbas. Mm. Well, Barabbas is an interesting um, story. Here's an, here is someone who is an insurrectionist. So he was someone who was essentially like a domestic terrorist. He had committed all kinds of crimes in order to provoke insurrection against Rome. Um, he was not well-liked by the Jewish people because he kept causing trouble for them and making them look bad. The Romans didn't like him because he was committing these acts of terror and murder. He was very guilty. And you can imagine Barabbas sitting in his cell, awaiting execution, maybe writing letters home, maybe trying to make amends, maybe have profound regret for the life he's lived. And he knows he's going to die. And all of a sudden there's a knock on the cell and it opens. His shackles are taken off and he's, someone tells him, um, you've been set free. And I wonder if Barabbas, for the rest of his life, like, what did he think about Jesus? Here's the one who literally died in his place. Did he ever turn to Jesus and look at him as the one who had spiritually died in his place? Um, and in a, in a sense, Barabbas is all of us. We are all Barabbas. All of us are guilty before God of crimes that we we deserve punishment for. And yet Jesus died in our place, and we have been set free. Daniel, it's this Easter, probably will be, more of us will be gathering than we've gathered in a long time. It might be the first time that there's more people in a church uh, during this very difficult last 12 months. Uh, how does this Easter story even speak to that in a difficult s- situation? You know, Easter is always the best time of year in many ways for Christians because this is everything, right? Um, Paul said, if, if Christ is not risen, we are religious people are all, all men most miserable. But because Jesus rose from the grave, everything changes. So this is everything for us. This is this is our whole faith. But I think this year is going to mean even more. I think Easter speaks to the moment we're in even more. As you said last year, most of us had to not gather. Uh, this year we're gathering more. Easter tells us that the Christian faith is embodied, that Jesus did not just rise spiritually, he rose physically, that God is renewing and restoring, will renew and restore our bodies. And to gather together in an embodied way is so important for Christians to be together, to be with our fellow Christians. And I think Easter also speaks to this moment because as we see the images of death all around us in a broken world, uh, Easter tells us that after a long, hard winter of sin and brokenness in the world, something new is coming, that God is birthing something new in Jesus, that the brokenness and despair we have seen in the last year, God is on the move. He's renewing and restoring uh, people's hearts and souls who believe in him, but he's also renewing and restoring the world. So I think Easter speaks to this moment uh, so much, and it's, it, Easter could not have come at a better time. 
Yeah. Daniel, I think you're also going to offer my listeners some free Easter resources. Yeah, so if you go to my website, danieldarling.com slash Easter, we have all kinds of free downloads if you want to do the characters of Easter with your group or your church or just individual study or your family. Uh, So you can go there and get those. And the book is available wherever you prefer to to purchase books. Mm -hmm. Very easy name to remember, Daniel Darling. What's your middle name, Daniel? It's Michael. Daniel Michael Darling. (laughs) That's even easier to remember for some reason. Daniel, thank you you so much for doing the show. Your book is fascinating, and I enjoyed uh, going through it with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate being on your show and grateful for the good ministry that you're doing there. I appreciate you saying that. Have a great rest of the week. All right. Thank you. All right. You bet. Daniel Darling has been my guest, Daniel Michael Darling. And his book is called The Characters of Easter, The Villains, Heroes, Cowards, and Crooks Who Witness History's biggest miracle. That's our show for today. Thanks to the guys for coming on and Dr. Bruce Ashford and Daniel Darling. It's been a great show. It's been great being with you. I hope as you lay your head on the pillow tonight, you know that God is working out his great plan in your life and he loves you and I love you and I'm looking forward to our time tomorrow. See you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.